But if you will, open with me in your Bible to the book of First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, this morning we are going to be picking up in verse 18 and reading down to verse 25, and considering these further instructions that Peter is giving to Christians who are in various circumstances, and how they are to conduct themselves before unbelieving Gentiles. And uh, here in verse 18 to 25, he's going to address in particular servants and tie his instructions most particularly to them in the work of Jesus and his own sufferings uh, at the cross. So if you will, uh, as we begin reading Read along with me in verse 18 down to verse 25. Peter is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. To this you have been called. As Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's go again to the Lord in Father, there are, there are times in which you call us to be a suffering people. And everything in our flesh would refuse it. Everything in our flesh would desire to respond to evil done to us with more evil. And 
and to respond even perhaps to unjust things done to us with vengeance. And yet you have given us an example in Christ. You have not only commanded us and revealed to us your will, you yourself in the person of your Son have gone before us and have shown us the way of suffering under unjust men. And as Christ has given us this example, an example through which we have been reconciled freely to God, we are then called to follow the very same way and to be a people who do not raise our fists against others, but who lay our lives down for them that they might be saved. So Father, I pray especially for our time this morning that as we consider these instructions that you gave by Peter to servants who were Christians, and as you pointed them to the sufferings of Christ, Lord, that we ourselves would have this mind and heart within us, that we would imitate Jesus and suffer well when called to. I pray this all in Jesus' name. ago, I, I came across a discussion by uh, a rather well-known uh, atheist thinker and uh, writer, Sam Harris, perhaps some of you have heard of him before, and, and this was a discussion about uh, the, the Bible, and uh, Harris, of, of course, is a uh, very outspoken atheist, finds the Bible to be morally objectionable. In his mind, it is full of moral positions that we moderns would and should consider to be reprehensible. And I think it's always interesting to hear an atheist speak of things such as values and Morals, particularly because their, their own worldview that views creation itself as not even creation. It views the world as being this meaningless and purposeless thing that has just evolved over time through random chance and, and evolution. But to hear an atheist speak of morals and values when the, their own universe that they live in has none is always rather interesting. Borrowing the Christian worldview to even make these assertions. But in this discussion in particular, Harris objected to the assertion or to the idea that the Bible endorses slavery. This was his, one of his, his issues. The Bible endorses 
slavery. And of course, when somebody says something like that, it's as if immediately the argument is over. Nothing more needs to be said. In this day and age, if you can you can establish, right, that the, the Bible has endorsed slavery. The argument is over. In fact, this is also a very common objection that's raised by atheists, and, and really a, a lot of people who, who aren't atheists, but who just don't accept the Bible as the Word of God. I've got an atheist relative, in fact, who I've had many discussions with on this very matter. The Bible endorses slavery, therefore it is evil, therefore it is to be rejected. What those who make these kinds of claims often fail to do is to actually read the Bible carefully. They find a command like the one we have here in 1 Peter, servants be subject to your masters. They note that there is not some call for a radical abolitionist movement. And in the discussion, every chance that Peter had, at every chance that Paul had, he, he should have said something to the slaves about ending this, this very institution. As many as have noted before, the Bible does not actually, when read carefully, endorse slavery. That's a very uh, particular word. It doesn't treat it as if it is some moral and necessary good that ought always to remain. It doesn't treat it as if it is some institution that is embedded within creation itself, and some people are just allotted to slavery while others are not. It addresses it as a present reality that has existed in the world for virtually the entire history of the world. It speaks to the present realities of the day, and it both directly and indirectly sows the seeds for its destruction. It undermines in numerous ways the very institution itself. So consider with me some of these these points as an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul there is instructing the believers at Corinth as a general rule to live in whatever condition they were in when the Lord saved them and and called them. Which here doesn't mean that if the Lord saved you and you were married, you can never get married, or if you were working a particular kind of job, you can never change jobs or, or anything like that. Paul is stressing the importance for believers to make their lives about keeping the commandments of God and learning the secret of contentment in both the best of situations and the worst situations and not necessarily 
making a change in their present circumstances as their life's mission. And so in that very same chapter, one of the things he says is that when the Lord called you, if you were circumcised, don't try and reverse that. Don't go get uncircumcised. If you were uncircumcised when you were called, don't go get circumcised and try to become some ethnic Jew. Live as you are. He says in that very same chapter, in verse 21, when he addresses slaves, he says to them, he says, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. You can, you can still live a faithful, godly, God-honoring, God-glorifying life even in that station. Don't be concerned about it. But then he adds, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. Get free. For he who is called the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, that, that doesn't sound like an endorsement of slavery. Avail yourself the opportunity to be free if you can. Paul believed that some people are just meant for slavery and destined for it, as has been the case for virtually every society that has ever practiced slavery. It's hard to see why he would say you should gain your freedom if you can. He is obviously recognizing freedom to be a much much better good that you should gain. It doesn't appear here as if Paul is considering slavery a moral good or most especially as a necessity for human civilization. Consider also another point that Paul makes that indirectly undermines slavery as a necessary institution. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 28, Paul writes there, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God these Galatian believers. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are one in Christ. And because of the gospel, you are all equal. The Jew is not superior to the Gentile. His ethnicity does not make him greater than the Gentile. The the male is not superior to the female and is not less than a master or a freeman. Christ has made you all one. 
And a statement like that, especially in a society and a culture that rejects that very notion and believes that a slave has no rights, that a slave has no dignity, that a slave is nothing more than mere property, that is a radical contradiction to the gospel. You are all equal. You are all one in Christ. Even the Old Testament has strong regulations around slavery that existed in the ancient Near East. Regulations that guaranteed protections of slaves. And then perhaps the strongest language that anyone ancient Near East, Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The entire edifice of the slave trade that existed in this nation was an example of radical disobedience to this very command. It warped the death of the reasons and many more that we could add, many other examples as well that men, Christians like William Wilberforce and many abolitionists in America dedicated lives to the very cause of abolition, grounding their arguments not in the Enlightenment and not in humanistic philosophies, but grounding their, their arguments in the the Bible itself. It is untrue to assert ever that the Bible endorses slavery. That is a slander to God. Of course, having said this, we still have to understand what it is that Peter is saying here in our text. He is addressing slaves, particularly household slaves who were often responsibility for overseeing various domestic matters of the house, whether that was cleaning, whether that was cooking, whether that was even the training and the teaching and the education of children in the house. These were slaves in particular who were considered members of the house and part of the very family, which sometimes could, could be, especially if you had a, a cruel house, uh, could be a bad As Peter addresses these households, he charges them to be subject to their masters. But again, what is, what's going on here? Is Peter here endorsing slavery? 
simply as a morally good institution or concern in mind? Is there some other aim that he's getting at? Some purpose he has with these instructions? Well, I think it's worth remembering that this whole section that we're in right now is the Christians or how they are to live as a reflection of the God unbelieving Gentiles. How are they to live when they are under the authority of those who are unbelievers and in situations where they may have no rights at all? How do we live in those kinds of environments? And the first example of this situation is Christians, of course, living under the authority of the emperor and, and governors, most of whom were most of whom followed the state religion of emperor worship. They're the ones who are in charge. They're the ones who are making the laws. They're the ones whom you are under. How do you live under that? Do you rebel? You form a revolution. Trying to overthrow the government. Hey, the kingdom of God on earth. Do you, do you take upon your the unique command and, and you make war against the faith? No, you, you subject yourself. Always doing good, never violating the will of God. Then in chapter morning, Peter to the headship of unbelieving husbands. What are they to do? How are they to live in their homes? Are they to divorce their husbands? Are they to chastise them and cast off all respect for their husbands because their husbands have constantly nag at them? Should they just be a nuisance to their husbands? No. They too are to be subject to their own husbands, their unbelieving husbands, with the aim of winning Christ with their pure conduct and their behavior. And then here we have household slaves living of unbelieving masters. They have no real legal rights. They have no rights at all. They have no avenue to appeal to higher courts for protection if needed. If they were to run away to get caught, they would be at minimum imprisoned and most killed. So what are they to do? They're, they're, they're new Christians. They are already slaves living under the authority of unbelieving masters. What should they do? Should they try and run away? Should they form? and 
and seek to overthrow How are they to live? Well, the answer again is the same. The same as it was to Christians living under unbelieving authority. It's the same as guys living under the headship of unbelieving husbands. They are to their masters. But specifically here, they are to look to their true master, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their example who Himself endured unjust mistreatment and who laid down His own life for the sake of sinners. They especially to look to Christ as their example and as their strength. There is, of course, in this an obvious recognition situation be a unjust one. In verse 18, Peter acknowledges the reality of both good and gentle masters and unjust ones. In verse 19, he says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter is in no way endorsing slavery. He is recognizing here they may in fact be living under severely unjust situations. Sorrowful situations. He is in no way... Particularly who are suffering that their situation is just and good and that they need to just keep their mouth shut like a good little slave. He is speaking especially into a situation where there is unjust suffering and the natural question that would arise in such a situation is out in the city, heard the gospel, been speaking to these Christians, they've they've led me to Christ. Here's the situation I'm in. I'm living in this house, and this man is cruel and crooked. How do I deal with this? How do I make it through? He's pointing the Christian Christ as the supreme example for how this person is to endure in the midst of this. John Piper has a book about following Christ called Don't Waste Your Life. And he's got another very similar one, a similar title. He's addressing the situation of a, a Christian who is suffering with cancer. And the title of that book is called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Where he 
he is giving biblical guidance and pastoral wisdom or using even a terrible affliction like cancer for the glory of God. Not just focusing and being consumed by the illness, but rather using that very affliction as as an opportunity to reveal the glory of Christ in your decaying body. Don't waste your cancer. So for Peter, it's as if Peter is saying to these slaves, don't waste your slavery. It is a very real situation of self is acknowledged. But he is in essence saying to them, this is how you can glorify God even in the midst of unjust treatment by your masters. This is how you can conduct yourself in the eyes of the crooked and twisted to adorn the Gospel of Christ so that through your life, perhaps even your Master may be saved. Again, that's... You think back to chapter 2. That, that's the purpose, right? That's, that's the aim of all these instructions is to leave the, the ungodly to the Lord. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In the day of visitation, we, we want the wicked of whom we once were accounted No God to see God. Peter is saying to them here, this, this is how you can conduct yourself in such a way as to reflect not only in your words, but in your very life, the cross of Christ. You do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You do not strike out in vengeance when you yourself have been struck. Take upon yourself the life of Christ and you imitate Him in every way just as He was. A suffering servant patterned after the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You do not fix your eyes on the evils that you on earth, no matter how real, no matter how present they may be. You do not gaze upon them as if they are eternal, but you consider them as light, momentary afflictions in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. Cling to the promise Your sufferings are a gracious thing in the sight of God. You cling to the promise that God Himself sees your sufferings and you fix your gaze on the One whose own unjust sufferings brought you. As you lay down your life in the hopes that your very own life may lead others to Christ. 
you look to Jesus and you imitate him. It's at this point in in verses 21 to 25 that Peter reminds us of Christ's own sufferings by essentially summarizing how he fulfilled the prophecy of, of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It's here that he, in essence, unpacks the grace of God in and through the work of Christ. I, mean, I, th- I think we have here probably one of the most beautiful, succinct expositions of, of the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, if you want to know what Christians believe about Jesus and what He has done, what He has accomplished, why we give our whole lives to Him, why we do things that seem strange to the world. It's because of this right here. Jesus was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. As John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was no evil found in Him at all. Isaiah had prophesied long ago that the Lord's anointed servant and king would Himself die an unjust death. Isaiah 53, verse 9, again written some 750 years before Jesus even comes on the scene. He, he describes them. He says that, that they made His grave with the wicked. They, they, they treated Him like a criminal. They crucified Him like a criminal. They made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death. Of course, fulfilled when, when Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a, a rich man, treated as a criminal, buried with a rich man, or as a rich man, although he had no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And Peter, understanding that this, this very text was about the work of Jesus, wrote in verse 22 of Jesus that he committed no sin. And neither was deceit found in his mouth. Again, he was a sinless man. No charges that were brought against him could ever be substantiated. No temptation that was presented to him was ever succumbed to. No lie was ever uttered and no evil ever committed. Someone who was perfect in every single way he should have been commended by men. He should have received all praise and glory the moment He came on the scene. We, we, we as, as, as men, we should, have, we should have seen the very things that He was doing, the, the miracles that He was working, the, the feeding of the thousands with mere crumbs and a few fish. We should have seen His stilling of the storms, His healing of the of the paralytics this raising of the dead together with his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom and all men should have bound before him at once there was no sin in him at all and only the glory of god shining most brightly 
And yet what happened? He was unjustly killed. Men plotted against him. They schemed against him. They slandered him. They arrested him and killed him. Just a reminder, you can live a life that is a perfect reflection of Jesus. You should never expect that you are going to be well-liked by all men. And that all men will, will receive your gospel witness. Jesus himself suffered unjustly. Peter goes on to say in verse 23 that he was reviled. Men despised him. They worked against him. His, his life was, as Isaiah described it, he was oppressed, he was afflicted like a lamb that is led to slaughter. So how does Jesus respond? all of this unjust mistreatment. Does he call down fire from heaven? He could have. Does he summon the heavenly host, the angelic armies, to wage war and to bring immediate judgment against ungodly men? That's, that's what he does. He opened not his mouth. He was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus' singular focus was to accomplish the singular task that his Father had given him from eternity past. It was not his calling, it was not the will of God for him to come into the world first as a conquering king. It was appointed for him to be the suffering king, the dying king. It was appointed for him to give his own body as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the very people who despised and rejected him. It was appointed for him to lay down his life for the very people who hated him and who were in rebellion against him. It was appointed for him to bear in his own body the curse of the law and to take upon himself the full weight of the just wrath of God against sin so that as he bore in his flesh that very justice, as he became a substitute for guilty man, there would no longer be any wrath to bear for those who would trust in him because that wrath would be completely exhausted. Son of God. And the reason why you are in Christ, you can say that you have eternal life. You are justified before God and you have no fear of damnation is because there's no more wrath for you. The just demands of the law have been satisfied. bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah says. 
Peter similarly in verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friends, this is the good news. This is what we cling to. Because of the work of Jesus, we do not have to eternal damnation. It is because Jesus joyfully accepted the Father's appointed task for Him to suffer that we now have life in His name. It is because He did not set His mind only on the agony of the cross, but only on the will of His Father and the glory to come that He was raised and exalted and by His life we are justified. As the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, it was for the joy that was set before Him that He endured the cross despising its shame. He went through the cross because of the joy that was to come and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is His glory. This is the glory of Christ and this is our glory in Him. This is the very news of the Gospel that brings salvation to all who place their trust in Him. I ask you this morning, friends, have, have you understood this? Have you known this gospel yourself? Is this the very message that you have embraced and that you hope in? Can you say of yourself that when Jesus died on the cross, he, he died for me? you come to the point in your own life where you do not simply hear the message of the gospel as being about what Jesus did for sinners out there. You come to the point where when you it's not just for, for people in general, not just for, for mankind as some unnamed when he died, he died for me. Personally, name written on his hand. All confidence that I myself know that I am a wretched sinner. And I know that there are many wicked people in the world. And I know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I know that chief among all those sinners is me. But I have no despair. And I am not downtrodden in any way because I know the Son of God and He knows me. And His blood was spilt for me. Can you say that? Is that your heart? I know there are many who the Puritans used to call mere professors. Profess to believe in Jesus. They profess to be a Christian. They profess to believe in the gospel. But they cannot say, I know him. He 
knows me. You do not want to be a mere professor of the gospel. You want to be the object of the gospel. The recipient of it. Jesus is the subject. It is about Him. It is about His glory. It is about His work. You are to be the object. The one upon His work. Again, Peter says, he himself bore our sins. By his wounds, you have been healed. Our, we, you, me, mine, died for me. The gospel is in every way personal. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just an idea. It's not just a religion out there. It is the call of God to sinners like you and me be reconciled through my son. So can you say that? Have, have you yourself embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior and been reconciled to God through faith? I ask that because this is where everything must begin. This is foundational to everything. This is the foundation of the entire life. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, the commands and the instructions that we are given through make We won't have a mind or a heart to accept them, to submit ourselves to them. And we especially won't have any power to obey them. And this particular truth is is seen, I think, most here in, in this text. Peter is calling Christians who may be in utterly impossible situations where there is no path for justice, no hope for earthly comforts. Here in particular, these household slaves with wicked masters, he's calling them to imitate Christ and to suffer well. How do you do that? You can't in the flesh. That's impossible. It's it's something that the flesh can't accept. I'm a slave. I'm doing good. I'm doing more good than I've ever done before. Especially now that I'm working as unto the Lord and not as unto men. I've I've spoken gracious words and my Master has beaten me without cause. How do I deal with that? What does the flesh want to do? The flesh wants to strike back. wants to give the wicked man a taste of his own medicine. It wants to plot and scheme and figure out ways to perhaps ruin his house and ruin his occupation. Anything to get back at him for that unjust treatment. That's what the flesh wants. 
an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You strike me, I strike you. You commit evil against me, I'm committing evil against you. And I have a righteous cause to do so. That's what the flesh does. And what does Peter say? Peter says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. You're not the only one who suffered. Christ suffered for you, and you are called to imitate. You must endure the suffering, and you must entrust yourself and entrust vengeance in the hands of God. And the only way you can do that is if the gospel has been deeply implanted within you. And you have the Spirit of God to strengthen you through such injustice. This can only be obeyed. This can only make sense if the gospel is the foundation. If you have embraced as your master and Lord the one who himself walked the road of suffering to Calvary and died so that you might live. Now, I am grateful that this institution no longer exists at all for us. It certainly still exists in the world. Let us not be ignorant of that. This is not a present problem for us. And I'm grateful for the countless thousands of Christians who have, in fact, gone before and spent their lives chipping away at that very institution. But though we may not be in this situation in particular, that we have suffering in one form or another, is the lot that we have been promised as Christians. You are not your best life now. (laughs) As one famous speaker has said. You are not promised comfort. You are not promised a life of ease. Following Christ, in fact, comes with the promise that in some way or another, you will suffer persecution. Whether that comes through verbal persecution, reviling, slander, social ostracism, some sort of mistreatment like that, that Peter himself, in 1 Peter Jesus Himself on the Sermon of the Mount accounts as genuine suffering. Nobody likes to be reviled. It may come in that form. It may come in the form of physical violence. Regardless of the type, that is the lot that all Christians have been given. 
it's necessary, it's necessary that you understand that that is the cost, that is the cost of a price. You, you count it. You count the cost following it. There, there may indeed be a great loss here, now, but the promise is always the great gain that is to come. It is, in fact, a very strange thing Jesus even says, if all men speak well of you. There are indeed many professing Christians who, the moment some trial or the smallest persecution arises, the mere threat of it comes. There are many who fall away. They are like the seed that Jesus says falls on the rocky ground upon Upon hearing the word, they, they sprout up immediately. They receive it with joy immediately. They look like Christians. They've heard the gospel, they've believed it, they've accepted it, but the moment persecution comes, the moment some trial comes, Jesus says, they, they fall away. Because there's no root in them. It is as if the, the word never actually landed in the heart rocky ground never made it in. But those who last, those who show themselves to be true Christians and who bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, they are those who endure suffering. They not only receive the finished work on the cross, but they, they live the way find every way that they can to even in the midst of sufferings to, to bring glory to God. But we must be prepared, friends, to endure the very same kinds of things and to endure them with much grace and, and patience. This is something that you, you have to already begin to be training your heart for. Because if you wait, right, if we, we don't consider these things, we don't count the cost, we don't prepare our minds and prepare our hearts for these things now, well, when the trials come, it's too late. And we'll have no tools. And the danger will be much greater that we will fall away. And so we, we have to begin now. Submitting ourselves to this Word and submitting ourselves particularly to the call to to imitate Christ in His sufferings. You know, heaven forbid something like what happened in Ukraine ever comes our way, but, but I'm sure perhaps many of you have seen great testimonies of believers, Christians over there, enduring the afflictions that have come upon them and their nation, singing hymns to God while bombs are falling. You don't get to that point without prior preparation. And that's what we have here. A preparation for our minds and our hearts. And a call to be ready to endure whenever the various trials come your way. To look to Jesus who Himself suffered on your behalf that you
Let's go to the Lord and ask His, His grace over this. Father, there are indeed many instructions that we are given, many commands we are given throughout your word. And some of them at least have the, the appearance of simplicity, easy to obey. We shall not murder, shall not hate, love one another. And then there are those commands, Lord, that are very obvious that the only way they can be obeyed is if we have known Christ and Christ knows us. And his very obedience needs the supernatural work of the Spirit. And Lord, here is one especially. For servants again and for Christians in general, whenever trials come our way, to be a people who endure sufferings and entrust ourselves continually into the faithful hands of God. So Lord, I pray that you would make us that people, that you would already be preparing within our, our own hearts the strength that we need to endure when various trials come our way. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 